are going to continue on this series called Endgame. This is the series that we're doing on the last book in the New Testament, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Now, let me give you a little bit of, of, uh, of, of how we came to this series. Jim and I were sitting there talking about series over, over the, as we got closer and closer to Easter. And, uh, and Jim says, Bill, he says, let's do Revelation. Let's just tackle Revelation. And, I'm, and I, you know, that's, that's my imitation of Jim. That's the way he sounds. And, uh, and, uh, and he says, and I said, Jim, are you serious? I said, I said, you sound like one of my college students from all those years in college ministry where they're going, we're going to do Revelation in our Bible study this year. And they go one week and they start reading about horns and they start reading about beasts and dragons and 666 and Satan. And they're going, I just want to go back to Jesus walking on water. And so, so, you know, I told Jim, I said, you know, we'll go one week and people are going to go, go on to something else. He's going, no, we can do this. Let's do Revelation. And so, so last week, Jim did a, an overview. If you weren't here, he did an overview of Revelation from start to finish. You want to just kind of go through it all. And, and you guys should have seen him preparing for it. He's sitting in here la- the week before, and he's got a cold, and he's got the flu starting to hit, and, and he's trying to get through it. And he said it was one of the hardest talks he's ever had to prepare for. I came walking in here on one of the days, and he's just up here moping like crazy about it. And I said, Jim, what's up? He goes, this is hard. And I said, you made this bed. You got to sleep in it. You got to do this thing. And so, and so he did it, and he made it through. But you guys, I have to admit, and this is hard for me to admit, but Jim's right. I know that's tough. It's hard for me to admit that, but Jim's right. We do got to look at this book. The more I've been studying it, the more it's reminding me of how rich this book is. That there's a reason why it says that if you read this, you will be blessed. There's a reason why it's the last book in the New Testament. There's all kinds of great things that we can pull out of Revelation, even in the midst of some of the stuff that's really hard to read in it. We can admit there's some stuff that's really hard to read in it. But as we're going through that, as you start to pick, pick that thing up, apart and you start to st- study it a little bit more, you start to go, wow, cool stuff in here. One of the things that I actually really like about it is the mystery that's in it. There's a lot of mystery in Revelation. There's a lot of parts to it that is hard to figure out. What does that mean with the battle between God and Satan? And what's, that mean? what's, it, what's eternity look like? There's mystery in that. And I want there to be mystery. I don't want a, a, a God that, that I can fit into my tiny little brain. I don't want a God that can, I can, I can, can, can confine into this thought and this is who God is. I want a God that's going to blow those walls off and say, I am so much bigger and, and so much, I can go so much further than you would ever think. And that's what, we, that's what we get in Revelation, even in the mystery. So it's not something that you'd want to just accept the mystery in Revelation but it's something we want to actually embrace. That if you've read it, Jim challenged people last week, read through the whole thing if you, if you could, so that you can even be ready for the rest of these talks on, on Revelation as we get closer to Easter. As you read through it, even in the questions, just go, man, this is part of the mystery that comes with following a God that's so much bigger than me. There's another thing I've loved about Revelation, and that's the person that wrote it. John, the guy that wrote Revelation, is the same John that walked with Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples. He was the same John that Jesus, when he was on the cross, looked down and said, will you take care of my mom? He said that to John. The same one that wrote the Gospel of John and that wrote First and Second and Third John. It's that guy. 
And listen to this. This is really cool. When John was walking with Jesus, he was the youngest of the disciples. And so they say he might even have been a teenager. And what's great about that, what's fun about that is that people in there that 16, 17, 18 years old, and you go, who would ever listen to me? Or what could I ever do for the Lord? And you just go, come on. Look what John was doing as he's walking with Jesus right there. Jesus wasn't saying, well, you should be 21 or you should be an adult. He was looking at John going, man, you are one of my closest friends and I want to use you. And so it's, it's so cool that, that people in their teens could be inspired by this guy, John. But when he wrote Revelation, it was at the end of his life. This was after he had, he had seen so much and gone through so much. Many of his friends and disciples were martyred. And he's now at the end of his life. They say he might have been writing that in his 70s, 80s, or 90s as he was exiled to this island of Patmos. And he's out there on this island and he's writing this stuff down. He, he was, if he's in his 70s or 80s, think about how he could have easily said, man, God's already told me everything I need to know. Think about how he could have said at that point, I've already experienced it. I've already seen it. What else would there be for God to say? He could have easily said, I'm done. He could have said, how will God ever use me and my old body that I've got now? How will God ever use me? He's got, he's got to have some younger person he'd want to use. And Jesus is going, man, there's no shelf life. You're not You're not done. I've got stuff I want to say to you, and it might be something more than anything you'd ever heard before. And I want to use you. And you're going to write this stuff down. It's going to bless people for centuries. I love that because I have a lot of old, older friends. And we have a lot of older friends in this room that we've got, we've called our vintage group and it's our group that has seen and experienced a lot of stuff over the years. And we've said before that you're the hippest people in this, hippest vintage people in the region because you're going to church in, in curtain walls and it's freezing cold with donuts hanging on, on hooks and you're still here and you're still going. And I love it that you're still going, but you, even more important is God's got something for you. And if I'm talking right now, you guys that are under the age of, let's just say, 68, okay? Anybody 68 or over, I'm talking to you right now. The rest of you guys, get on your phones and do something else. You guys that are 68 or over, he's got something to say to you. He's not done talking to you. He's not done revealing truth about who he is to you. And he has things he wants you to do. He's got, he's got, he, he might have a whole other plan that you would never have expected. And you might say, I'm 74. And he'd say, okay, you're 74. I got stuff for you. Never conclude that I'm too old. John is on this island of Patmos and he could have easily told Jesus, I'm too old. And Jesus is going, no, you're not. You got all kinds of stuff you can still give. Be just as inspired by John in pa at Patmos in his 70s or 80s and 90s as you'd be inspired by John when he was 18 walking with Jesus. You've got a lot still to give and you're extremely valuable to what the Lord wants to do for his kingdom. So know that and hear that. The third thing I love about Revelation is that, is that it's, a, it's a story of hope. That while we, there's all mystery in there and we're trying to figure it out, it's a story of hope because it's a, it, it talks of Jesus then and Jesus now and Jesus to, to, to come. It talks about what God's plan was then and God's plan is now and what God's plan is to come. And that, that plan has a ton of hope in it. 
And even the parts around evil, sometimes we sit and wonder, does God have a plan around the evil that we see in this world that we saw a couple of weeks ago in Florida? Does God have a plan? And God's got a plan around evil. And in the end, we, we have hope because we know that he will overcome evil. And that's shared in Revelation. And so it is a book of great hope, but we have to embrace the mystery in the midst of that so that we can see the hope that we have in Jesus in this, okay? So, so my hope in, in, for all of us is that this isn't just tr- trudging through Revelation as we get to Easter, but that it makes sense that we're looking at Revelation as we get closer to Easter, because Easter is, the enti- is, is hope unveiled in Jesus as Jesus goes to the cross and conquers the grave. And this fits that we would walk along Revelation right to Easter. So let's pray together and we're going to get into what what he has for us right now as we look at what what he wanted John to write to these seven churches. So Father, we thank you for the chance to to gather today and to to look at your word today and, and to look at your book that I don't know if you ever meant for it to be confusing, but I know that there's a lot in it. And I pray that you would help us to, um, to understand it, shed some light on it, and then in the end we can draw closer to you as a result of it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's what we're doing. So, so, John, so, so, we're, so John is sitting there in the island of Patmos. He's exiled. You know, um, he's, there's all kinds of stuff that's been happening in the, in, the, in the region where he had been seeing all these churches and been pastoring in these churches. And so now he's, he's exiled the island. The rest of the disciples have been martyred. And, and so he's, he's out there in his old age and he gets this vision of Jesus. And he's saying Jesus actually appeared to him in this. And Jesus actually started talking to him. And it says, I, John, am writing this to the seven churches in Asia province. That's the current day, current Turkey or or around Turkey right now. All the best to you from the God who is, the God who was, and the God about to arrive. And so that's then, now, and forevermore, okay? And he starts writing this down from the vision he had and the voice that he heard. He started hearing this voice and he said, he said, I turned to see whose voice it was that was speaking to me. And when I had turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among these lampstands, I saw someone like the Son of Man. And so he turns and he sees and he sees Jesus there with these lampstands around him. And the lampstands represented the seven churches in this, in, in this province around Asia. Okay, so it's, it's, it's the seven lampstands of these churches and Jesus standing in the middle. Uh, Jim talked about this last week. He drew it on his board of the lampstands and Jesus standing in the middle of them. Now here's what we got to grab hold of. When he talks about the seven churches, a lot of times when you see seven in the Bible, that means really whole. It's like when, when God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, that was the whole of his creation. And so a lot of times when you see his, the number seven, it means this is, a, this is an example of the whole. And so when he's writing to these seven churches, and it's an example of the whole of all of the churches, then and now and forevermore. And so we can read the stuff that he's writing to these churches, and we go, this is part of the whole. It means it's, we're part of that. We're part of who he's writing to. And he's writing to the churches. Now we have to get it through our brains that when they're referring to church, they are not talking about the brick and mortar of a building. Jesus did not, it was not in love with the brick and mortar of a building. Or, the, or this, the curtains or whatever we've got here. He's looking at the church and he's looking at the people in it and the movement of the church and those people that are in that church. And he's going, I'm writing to you individually and I'm writing to you as your group and I'm writing to you as a community. And I'm saying, okay, I gotta let you guys know what's going on. 
And Jesus says, will you write this stuff down because I see this church and I love this church. I love the people that are in this church. As he stands in the middle of those lampstands, it makes me think about when all those times that Jesus spoke to his disciples and said, I am the shepherd and you are the sheep. He he said that in in Matthew 15 and in Luke 9 and in John 10. He talks about how he is the shepherd and we're the sheep. And he stands there among us in this pasture and he loves his sheep. And he's going, man, my job is to protect the sheep. And my job is to guide the sheep. And my job is is to save the sheep. He talks about one that's lost. And my job is to save the sheep. He's going, I am the shepherd. And these sheep will know me. They'll know my voice. I know their names and they'll know my voice. It says in John 10, it says, it says, um, where is it at? Where does it say? It says, the shepherds walked right up to the gate and the gatekeeper opened the gate to him and the sheep recognized his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he gets them all out, he leads them and they follow because they're familiar with his voice. We hear him and we can see him. And he stands among these churches. He's going, they hear my voice and I love these guys. And I want to care for them. And I want to protect them. Domitian is, is, is the emperor of Rome and he's, he's killing Christians everywhere. He's going, I want to protect them. And they don't get it. That, they, that they're in trouble. I want to guide them. And they don't get it that they're wandering. I want to, I want to love them and they don't get it that they need to be loved. I'm the shepherd and these are my sheep. And you guys, we're the sheep. And I hate to admit it, but sheep are dumb. They're dumb. And in a lot of ways, we are too. And we just go, man, we try, we flock together and we talk to each other. We try to figure things out. But in the end, we're a bunch of sheep. We're a bunch of sheep in the pasture that needs someone to lead us and needs someone to guide us. We're a bunch of sheep that don't realize the, the danger that's around us. We're just a bunch of sheep that don't realize what we do to ourselves. We're a bunch of sheep that, you know, when you study the stuff around sheep, you start to realize that, 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 that they say that sheep will follow blades of grass. They will follow the blade of grass. And they'll eat this blade of grass and then they'll go to the next blade of grass. And they'll eat that one and they'll go to this one. And they'll eat this patch of green grass and then they'll go to this one and they'll just follow a blade of grass. And the next thing you know, they've followed it back here and they're going, what in the world am I doing behind the drums? Because I just followed a blade of grass. They, they don't, they're not looking up going, what's around? They're not looking up going, is anybody else following me? They've just eaten. Isn't that us? Aren't in a lot of ways we're just following the blade of grass? At the end of your day, you go, what'd you do? I don't know. I just found myself behind the drums. You're just going, I just, just kept eating. And I'm not talking about really eating. I'm just talking about we just kept wandering. And Jesus is going, I've got to come. I've got I to guide these guys. I've got to help them. I've got to protect them because I love them. And so he's the shepherd with the sheep and he's looking at his churches and he's going, I love these guys and I love this church and I, and I, and I want to help them. And in some ways they're doing it so well. And in other ways they're, they're, they're missing it. And I want to be able to address both of those things with them. So he says to John, he says, will you write this stuff down? 
Write these things down because I want you to write, write to each of these churches and I want you to tell them a little bit of what they're doing well, but some of the areas where they gotta, they gotta address some of those things. And so, so he, he writes to these seven churches. Now, there's no way I can read all of what he wrote to all of them. In fact, I, I could do a whole sermon on each of these letters. And, and I actually might, this summer I actually might do a, a sermon series just on what he said to each of these places. But I'm going to try to summarize it today a little bit as we, kinda, as we try to get a little bit of a glimpse of all the seven churches. So he says this. So I'm going to just give you a, a shorter glimpses of what he said in these letters. He says to Ephesus. So he writes to Ephesus. Now, now just keep in mind, he, he write, the way he ordered this is, is if you were a messenger from Patmos, where John is at, you would first have gotten to Ephesus, and then after that you would have gotten to Smyrna, and after that you would have got to Pergamum. You would have just kind of gone in that route, and that's the order that he writes these in, okay? So he says, say this to Ephesus. He says, I see what you've done, your hard, hard work, your refusal to quit. I know you can't stomach evil and that you weed out apostolic pretenders. I know you've pers- your, your persistence, your courage in my cause, and you never wear out. So he's going, man, I see you, and you are working hard. But then he says, but you've walked away from your first love. Why? What's going on with you anyway? Do you have any idea how far you've fallen? He's going, man, you're working super hard and you've, you've committed to, to that, that specific you know, political agenda or that specific thing that you've done, but you forgot your first love. Do you remember your first love? Remember what it was like when you first engaged with me? You remember how you couldn't wait, to, you, you didn't hesitate one bit to go anywhere and now you hesitate to do anything? He's going, man, you guys don't forget your first love, he's saying to the the people in Ephesus. You've forgotten your first love. But then he keeps going. In Smyrna, he says, write this to the people in Smyrna. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. So he's going, look, you guys have a lot. I see you got a lot. But inside, there's, there's a poverty that's in there. You're poor on the inside. And I see that. I know nobody else does, and you've hid that well, but I see the poverty on the inside. He moves on to Pergamum and he says, write this to Pergamum. He says, I see where you live, right under the shadow of Satan's throne. But you continue boldly in my name. You never once denied my name. Even when the pressure was worse, when the martyred Antipas, my witness who stayed faithful to me in Satan's turf. But why do you indulge that, that, that Balaam crowd? So he's going, look, you, are, you have set up shop right near Satan's throne. And he says, and I admire how hard you've, st- you've stood up during, in the, right there near Satan's throne. But you're giving in. Every once in a while, you're getting tempted by that. You've, you've, you've lived there long enough that you're tempted by it, and why do you keep giving in to that? So he goes into that in this letter. See, what he's doing is he's recognizing good stuff is happening all around. Good stuff's happening. But there are pieces within that that can dr- make your faith weaker. There's th- things in that that can make you susceptible to the danger that's around you. There's things in that that can make it harder for you to engage with each other. And so he's speaking of both of those things right there as he cares deeply for his church as his sheep and him as the shepherd. He goes to Thyatira and he says, I see everything you're doing for me impressive. Listen now, I mean, this is loving. The love and the faith, the service and the persistent, yes, very impressive. You get better at it every day. You're doing good. But he says this, but, but, but why do you let that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet mislead my dear servants into cross-denying self-indulging religion? So he's saying, you're letting that, a seed of bitterness or seed of something get in the way there. And man, we got we to gotta address that. 
And you know what that's like when you've let something kind of weave in to what you, the good that you're trying to do. He says to Sardis, he says, I see right through your work. You have a reputation for vigor and zest, but you're dead, stone dead, up on your feet. Take a deep breath. Maybe there's still life in you. He's going, you got a great reputation, but you can't live on your reputation. How many churches just live on their reputation? How many of us individually live on our reputation? You guys, one of the really cool things about what's happening in Ascent over these four years that Jim and I have loved is that we have a good reputation in the community. Uh, we love it that the city council s- stood out in front of us when, we were, when they were voting on our, us getting that piece of property, that they stood out and said, we love what you guys have done in this community so far. And we're going, that's what we want to do. That's a good thing. But if we just lived on that reputation and we just settled in, well, that's our reputation. Man, that gets us nowhere. We got to keep pressing and we got to keep going. And he's going, man, you can't just live on your reputation. But what's next? What do I have in store for you next? In Philadelphia, he says, I see what you've done. Now see what I've done. Who's really leading? How easy is it for us to forget who's leading and that we just go, look what I've done. And you just go, man, but who's leading you? Look what we've done here in this church. Look who's leading you. Look what I've done in my, who's leading you? He's going, remember who leads you because in the end, we're sheep. (laughs) He's going, will you let me lead you as your shepherd? And so so with all of these, what's so powerful about these letters, I'm going to go to Laodicea in a second. That's the one I want to spend a little bit more time in. With all of these letters, they all start with the very same thing and they end with the same thing. They start with this, I know you. I know you. I know your works in Ephesus. I know your affliction in Smyrna. I know where you're living in Pergamum. I know your works, you've a name of being alive, but you're dead in Sardis. I know your works, look, you've set open door, which no one's able to shut in Philadelphia. He knows us. He knows you. He knows you. He knows where you are working hard, but you've lost your first love. He knows you. He knows where you have set up shop really close to Satan's throne and you have worked hard to avoid that temptation in your life, but yet you still give in to it. I know you. He's not saying, I know you with condemnation. He's not saying, I know you going, he's he's saying, "I, I, I know you. I know that you tend to jump out and lead. And forget to recognize that I'm leading you. I know you. That's powerful for us to grab hold of. That he's looking at you individually and is going, I know you and I know what you're you're presenting, but I know you. And then he finishes every one of them with the same thing too. This part I didn't read to you guys. He finishes every one of them with, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That's what he says at the end of every one of his letter. Let everyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He's going, you have to hear my voice. I am the shepherd and you're the sheep and you have to hear my voice. And he's going, and I know you. And I know how hard it is for you to do that. And I know that when you're stuck in the middle of that temptation, man, you cannot hear my voice. And I know when you're leading, you're way out there in front and you cannot hear my voice. And I know that when you're working hard for some agenda that you've got and you've forgotten your first love, you cannot hear my voice. 
And he's going, I need you to hear my voice. Because I got stuff for you. And I want you to do this. And then he goes to Laodicea. Okay, so now he gets to the church. This, you guys need to know, this, um, this, this part, this part, this letter to Laodicea is one that for me personally has always been a really big one for me. Because I am the type of guy, um, I, I would call myself someone with a blue collar faith. I need a kick in the butt every once in a while. I need, I need God to wake me up every once in a while to, to the times that I've just kind of let myself go and let myself just kind of just slide along. And I need that kind of wake up go, come on, do you recognize that I'm here? And that's this letter to Laodicea. He's writing it to a group of people that are very rich and they're very self, they, they, they can take care of themselves. And so, so he, you know, they kind of present themselves as I've already got it all. They're very rich. They've got a bunch of clothing. They've got this black wool that's this special kind of clothing that they can, they make stuff out of that, that people would come to Laodicea to buy it. They, they have this medicine, especially for your eyes, that people would come if their eyes, if they had eye trouble and they'd come to Laodicea. It's a place that was very self sufficient. And he writes to this group. So in a lot of ways, this might be the closest one to the American church, to us. We got a lot going for us. And he's writing to this one. Now look, now look, now I just want to make sure you know, Jesus does not hold back on this one. He does not, he just lets us, he lets him, he lets him know. He says, right to Laodicea, the angel of the church, God's yes, the faithful and accurate witness. The first of God's creation says, I know you. Just like he's saying to all the rest of them. I know you. And he says, I know you inside and out and find little to my liking. Youch. You're not cold, you're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot. You're stale. You're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. You brag I'm rich. I've got it made. I need nothing from anyone. Ob oblivious to the fact that you're a pitiful blind beggar, threadbare, and homeless. <laughs> so, you see why I love it so much? Here's what I want to do. I want you to buy your gold from me, gold that's been through the refiner's fire. Then you'll be rich. Buy your clothes from me, clothes designed in heaven. You're gone. You've gone around half naked long enough. And buy medicine for your eyes from me so you can see, so you can really see. And then he slows down and he says, you guys, you need to know this. And this is what he says. The people I love. This is so important for us to hear it from the shepherd. The people I love, I call to account. Prod and correct and guide so that they'll live at their best. Do you hear that? You hear that, that this is a God that flat loves us and knows us and says, I, because I love, I call to account. I prod and I correct and I guide so that they'll live at their best. Up on your feet then, about face, run after God. See, what's happening in Laodicea is, is they're in the high plains. And the water in the high plains, there's the, 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 there's the hot, hot water that you bathe with. There's the cold, refreshing water that you drink. Both of those are very, very good things. But what happens is because it's in the high plains, it was really hard to get that water into Laodicea. They would pipe it in. They'd have some ri the rivers that would, that would kind of try to bring it in. In the end, when it got into Laodicea, it would sit there and it would just warm. And in the warm water, bacteria would form in there. It was disgusting to drink, too cold to bathe in, too, I mean, too, yeah, too cold to bathe in, too warm to drink it. It was just kind of this water that what can you do with? And he used that because he knows them. And he says, right to these people, look, you guys know what that tastes like. 
You know it. So when he's saying, oh, gross, I just want to spit you out or vomit you out, he's going, you know that taste too. We all know that taste. It's lukewarm. You guys, I bought this Starbucks. I bought this this morning at 5.30. Do you guys know that Starbucks is open at 5.30 in Superior? I bought this Starbucks at 5.30 this morning, a tall, vanilla, skinny vanilla latte that's got only 20 calories in it. It's awesome. So don't come up to me and tell me there's more calories in it. I just want to think that there's 20. So I got it at 5.30. It's less than lukewarm now. I don't like coffee anyway. And now if I'm going to drink this, it would be really gross. And I'd want to spit it out. And I'm not, I was thinking I should drink it, but I'm not going to, okay? It's gross. And you know it is. You know it is. And Jesus isn't saying something that they didn't already know. You know what that tastes like. And he's going, that's lukewarm. That you've got your riches. You've got your stuff. And you don't need anything else. You got your clothes, but you're naked. You've got your, you've got your, you can see, but you're blind. He's going, we, we continue to keep doing this thinking I don't need God. That was one of the hardest parts about doing college ministry. For me, for 21 years doing college ministry, one of the hardest parts was helping college students to see you need God. It's not just a fringe benefit to your life. You need him. But you know what? It's not just college students. That's all of us. You go through your day just going, I don't know if I need him. I, I, I got enough. It's just enough. There was a poem that I used to have hanging in my office. I don't have any more because I don't have an office. <laughs> I wish I had an office, but I don't. It's our office is the entryway. You all walked through my office this morning. I, but I used to have a poem that hung on the wall of my office that's, that was $3 worth of God. And it was a reminder for me. It was by Wilbur Reese. And it says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a homeless man or pick beats with a migrant. I I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth in the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I had that hanging in my office because so many times that's, that was me. I just want $3 worth of God, please. Enough to get me through the week and get me to the next weekend. And I'll hear a sermon the next weekend and maybe it's a $1.50 sermon, but that's enough. And it'll get me through the next week. And I'll just keep taking $3 worth of God and that gets me through because in the end, do I really need it? And Jesus is going, man, that's lukewarm. And that's dangerous. You got the world pressing against you, that's dangerous. You got stuff going on on the inside, that's dangerous. You're rich on the outside but poor on the inside, $3 worth of God isn't going to do it. He's going, we can't live in that lukewarm. There's a passage of scripture that I used to love preaching on. It's my favorite passage of scripture to preach on. It's, it's, a, it's this odd, odd story in Acts where Paul is speaking for hours and hours like I do in here. He's speaking for hours and hours, and this kid is sitting in the, in the windowsill. A kid named Eutychus is in the windowsill, and, he's, and, he's, and, and while Paul is preaching forever, Eutychus is doing the head nod in the back windowsill, and finally Eutychus just falls backwards out the windowsill and down two flights, two flights and, he, and, and they think he's dead on the ground. And, and, and then and, and the guy is sitting next to him, well, oh, Paul, he just fell out the window. 
And so they run down there and they get him and they, and they revive him. They bring him back up and then Paul keeps preaching. And then, and then that's it. And people go, now why in the world would you like that story? And I like the story because you think about where Eutychus is sitting. He's sitting in the back row. He's sitting as far away as he can. Instead of sitting right there saying, what can you tell me today? What do you got? He's sitting in the back row. And from the back row, what, do you, what can you do in the back row? I can judge you, but you can't judge me because I can see you and you can't see me. For the back row, I can engage and disengage whenever I want to. In the back row, I, you know, if I, just, if I get bored with the talk, I can just go on my phone. You guys in the front row, if you go on your phone, I can see you and I'll point you out. Back row, you can do whatever you want back there. You can leave whenever you want from the back row. You can just go. You can leave. Now, I am not talking about where you're sitting in this room. Please don't come up to me after and say, here's why I was in the back row. We came in late today. Don't give me a reason for sitting in the back row, okay? I am not talking, I'm not condemning you guys back there. I love sitting on those seats way back there. And you people in the front that are feeling all high and mighty right now, you guys are just as bad as us to sit in the back row. So don't get all y'all arrogant on me. I'm talking about where you stand in you and your relationship with the Lord and where you're standing with you and your relationship with the Lord is a lot of times we're as far back as we can get. And from back there, we can just judge. And that's a sign of our lukewarm. And back there, we can disengage. We can engage and disengage. And we'll respond when the emotion is high to respond. And when the emotion is low, we won't respond. And that's a sign of lukewarm. And we can leave whenever we want to maybe for three months, six months, a year, 10 years. And that's a sign of lukewarm. And Jesus is going, man, you guys, that's dangerous. You can fall out a window. That's dangerous. You can wander your way behind the drums. It's dangerous in our lukewarm. And he's going, and you deserve more. And your marriage deserves more. And your friendships deserve more. And your community deserves more. As a church gets lukewarm, your community deserves more. And your relationship with me, we deserve more. He's going, that's, I want the very best in your life. And so I want to call you out of lukewarm with all the love I can give and say, come on, hot that you can bathe and drink, bathe in and cold that you can drink or lukewarm in the middle. Now, when he says that to us, he says it with a great amount of love. Look what he, how he finishes. This is the way he finishes. I think this is the summary of all of his letters. He says, he says look at me. Look at me. He's, look, he's saying, okay, now all the thoughts you're thinking, look at me. He said, I stand at the door. And he's saying, and I knock. He says, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If you hear me call and open the door, I'll come right in and sit down to supper with you. He says, conquerors will sit alongside me at the head table just as I have conquered and took the place of honor at the side of my father's. That's the gift to the conquerors. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind words, the spirit blowing through the churches. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. And he just keeps knocking. And he says, you have lost your first love. And I'm not condemning you in that. I'm just knocking. He's saying, you have set up shop right near Satan's throne. And you keep giving into your temptations. And you're super worried about what that means. And you're trying to figure that out. And I'm standing at the door knocking. 
And he's saying, I, I can see where you are rich, but you are hurting on the inside. And I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. I can see where you want $3 worth of God. And I'm standing at the door knocking. I'm saying, I'm going to give you a whole lot more than that. I can see where you've become lukewarm. And you are afraid. You're afraid of what that means in your life. And I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And I will keep knocking until you answer. Until you say, come on in. And from there, we will sit down to a meal together. It was the most intimate act they could have done. They, had a, they sat down and they had a meal together. And he said, from here, let's talk. From here, I want to challenge you. From here, I want to push you because I want your life at the best. From here, you're 16 years old and I've got something to say to you. From here, you're 80 and I've got something I want you to do. I want you to live into hot and cold and useful and blessed to be a blessing. I just need you to answer the door. Wherever we stand, in our lukewarm, I need you to answer the door. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to recognize those places where we have settled. Recognize those places where we're accepting $3. Recognize those places where we have, ex we have concluded for one reason or another that we don't have anything to give. I pray that you would help us to recognize those places where we're afraid to come to you because we're afraid of the condemnation that might come with that. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see that you are a loving shepherd and we are sheep that are in desperate, desperate need of a shepherd that will guide us and protect us and guard us and lead us and save us. I pray that we would each take steps closer to you by opening the door and allowing you to speak. And Lord, may we hear your voice and respond to your voice this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together.